so good to be here to worship together. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to visit my daughter and my son-in-law in Lubbock, Texas. And I don't know if you knew this, but I have a grandson. Uh, his name is Daniel. And so we had the opportunity to go visit him. And, uh, and on the day, that, the day after we arrived, we had uh, the opportunity to be with Daniel all day long because Rachel had to go to work and Hasiel, my son-in-law, had to do his student teaching. And so I was really pumped about that. And we, we thought about all these things that we could do uh, to have fun with Daniel. And one of the things my, my uh, wife did kind of in a sneaky way is uh, Daniel had in his closet a uh, Texas Longhorn shirt, which my daughter would never put on her because she's a Baylor bear. And so uh, we managed to put it on him while Rachel was at work. And then... Um, I said, I'm going to, I've seen pictures of where my daughter and, and son-in-law take Daniel uh, to the park and to the gym and all these fun things they do. But I've walked around their apartment complex and I've seen this playground and I've never seen pictures of Daniel in that playground. So I'm going to show him what a great pops I am. And I'm going to take Daniel there and I'm going to take pictures and Daniel's going to have a great time and, and I'm going to be able to do something they've never done before. And so uh, sure enough, I, I took Daniel there in his little cart and uh, we got to the park and, and, uh, and, and, and we got on the equipment. In fact, I took a video. Would you like to see it? All right. Thank you. Here it is. You can do it. You can do it, come on. <laughs> Yay, you reached the top, baby. You reached the top. So, yeah. So I was so proud of that, and, and I said, look, I, you know, I helped him climb some hard equipment, and so I sent the video to my son-in-law and my daughter while they were at their respective workplaces, and I said, look what Daniel did. And my, my son-in-law uh, replied, wow, where was that? And I said, and, you know, like, let, let, me, let me school this guy. Uh, I said, it's at the playground in your apartment complex. And he replied, he goes, there's no playground in an apartment complex. That's a dog park. No wonder it looked really hard to do. <laughs> Daniel enjoyed it. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? When you? That moment when you thought you did something great, but you really goofed up. It's a really humbling experience. Don't ask me how I know. Have you ever come to the point in your life when you realize that all of your best efforts pale in comparison to your need? Have you ever come to the place in your life where you realize you've really messed up? You, you, you really don't have it together. You, you come undone. Well, that's the place where God meets us. God meets us at our lowest points. God meets us in our humility. He meets us in our brokenness. He meets us in our spiritual bankruptcy. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we were to write that, we would say, blessed are the ones who are spiritually rich. Blessed are the ones who know the Bible well. Blessed are the ones that have the right doctrine. Blessed are the ones who live so well that the world is impressed with their spirituality. Blessed are the ones who are spiritually rich and have it together. That's what we would say, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Today we start a new series for the next eight Sundays. Can you believe it's already November? And for the next eight Sundays, from here to the end of the year, we're going to look at these eight sayings of Jesus called the Beatitudes. Blessed are. Each of them begins with that. And today we'll focus on the first one. I've named the sermon Humble. Humble means Christ-likeness as disciples. Christ-likeness as disciples. On one occasion, there were three boys that were uh, from different backgrounds and they were uh, sharing their experiences of how their family celebrates Christmas, uh, which is about seven weeks away. I don't try to make you nervous or anything, but, um, and one of the boys was a Catholic, the other one was a Baptist, the other one was a Jew. So Catholic boy said, well, we do a lot of things. And then uh, when Christmas Eve comes, you know, we, have, we would have bought a tree. We buy a lot of gifts. We put it under the tree. Then on Christmas Eve, we go to mass. We go to midnight mass. And then we come home and we hold hands around the tree and we sing Ave Maria. And the Baptist boy goes, well, we also put a tree in our house and we buy a lot of gifts. We put them under the tree and, and we go to church for the candlelight service and when we come home from the candlelight service, we hold hands around the Christmas tree and we sing Silent Night, Holy Night. And they turn to the Jewish boy and, and the Jewish boy goes, on Christmas Eve, my dad comes home with all of the money that he's made from selling presents to the Catholics and the Baptists and he puts it on the table and we all hold hands around the table and we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> now, we may not always agree with the stereotypes and we may not like stereotypes, but it is true that our way of practicing our faith will characterize us. That, that our way of behaving and believing will connect us with, with a group. And so when we come to these Beatitudes, these eight phrases that begin with blessed are, we, they're part of a, a bigger uh, portion of teaching that we call the Sermon of the Mount. What Jesus is doing here is he's offering the distinguishing characteristics of his disciples. He's saying, this is how people are going to know that, that you're with me, that you follow me. Let, let's look again at uh, the beginning of that chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, right before uh, this beatitude that I just shared with you it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So as Jesus was preaching and doing miracles, there were huge crowds of people that would go see Jesus. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to get a blessing. They wanted to, to get a miracle from him. And, and there were just large crowds and Jesus would minister to them. He cared for them. His, his heart went out to them. But, but not everybody who shows up is a disciple. Not everyone who comes to church is a disciple. 
Not everyone who goes to, to the crowded place where, where there's blessings and good words and good things happening is a disciple. There comes a time when Jesus turns away from the crowds and focuses on his disciples and does exactly what he's doing on this occasion. He gives them what I would call a discipleship manifesto. Everything that follows here is for disciples. If you want to be my disciple, this is what will characterize you. This is how you know you're doing well. A disciple of Jesus, we said, is one who is like Jesus and who does like Jesus. It's about Christ-like character and Christ-like competence. It's about being and doing. And our doing flows out of our being. Mike Breen said this. He said, if you're being discipled by a rabbi, you certainly want to know what the rabbi knows. But the actual goal of being a disciple is to become who the rabbi is. Not just to know what he knows, but to become like him. That's insightful. A couple of months ago, we introduced to you, as we launched a new Calvary, we introduced to you a strategy for how Calvary makes disciples. We talked about the five G's of, of having the gospel and guiding people to become disciple makers. And then we said, the way we do that is we gather for worship, we grow in community groups, and then we go and we share the love of Jesus with a broken world. Gather, grow, and go. Those have to do with doing those have to do with Christ-like competence. But when we come to the Beatitudes, they have to do with being. They have to do with Christ-like character. So what does it mean? If, if we talk about gather, grow, and go, what does it mean to grow? How do, I, how do we know disciples are growing? How do we know uh, that, 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 that we are measuring that growth, that we're making healthy disciples? Well, Jesus answers those questions here in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. But he begins with this one, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means that we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the humble. They're Christ-like. Christ modeled this humility for us. He left his glory to be born in a manger where the animals ate. He gave up his rights, all of his rights, to become a servant to us while we were still sinners. And the Bible says that we should imitate him in that humility. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The richest being in the universe became the poorest one. He humbled himself. Death was obedient to death, even death on the cross. To be poor in spirit is to be humble like Christ. 
Disciples of Jesus should be like Jesus. So humble means Christ-like. Secondly, humble means countercultural to corrupted religion. A couple of weeks ago, we had a guest here from another country, and he talked about how the church in his country, the state church, has, ha, is filled with tradition and pride, but is far from the gospel. And how it is really difficult to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus because of a church that is supposed to be Christian, but has nothing to do with the gospel. Last Sunday, I, I, I played for you Martin Luther, and I did a monologue talking about that medieval time of the church when the church had become so drunk with power and politics that they had lost their connection, they had lost their way, and, and so God raised reformers to, to bring it back to, to the truth of the gospel. Oftentimes in history, Christianity has gotten off course. There have been times when the church, or at least the so-called church, has become tainted with power and politics. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's making a countercultural statement. It was countercultural in his day. The, the Roman Empire was in charge. They were ruling with an iron fist. The Roman emperor thought he was divine. So Jesus comes as a Messiah, and people are expecting him to show the Roman emperor that he's bigger and better than them. Surely what Jesus will do is teach his disciples how to, how to rise up against the Roman emperor, how to rise up against the Roman empire and, and show them that they're not all that, that they are bigger than them. And when Jesus shows up and he talks to his disciples, instead of teaching them how to be more assertive and how be more domineering, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's counterculture. It goes against the, the common mindset. It goes against human nature. But what is even more striking here is that it's not just countercultural to the world, but it's countercultural to the religion of his day. When you follow the Gospels, you'll realize that Jesus does not declare so much judgment on prostitutes or tax collectors or sinners. His words of judgment are for the religious people. That's who he gets angry at. The Jewish religious leaders believed in the right God. It was the true God. They believed in the true scriptures. It was the law and the prophets. But they had lost their way in such a way that they did not recognize the Messiah when he was in front of them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests in the temple had become hyper-nationalists. They mistakenly thought that Israel was the only nation that God wanted to bless. They had come to think that what God was wanting to establish was an earthly kingdom instead of a spiritual kingdom. And that hyper-nationalism produced racism. They, they hated other races because uh, they didn't worship the right God and surely God hated them. They ignore the fact that throughout the scriptures, God has said that he loves the nations. That hypernationalism led to arrogance because they, they, they saw themselves as God's chosen people and because they, they kept the law and they kept it to the letter, they said, surely we deserve this, this place of privilege. And they were filled with self-righteous arrogance. And it also led to idolatry. Although they hated idolatry, they made an idol of the law and of the temple. 
Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus never overturned tables at taverns? Jesus never cleansed houses of ill repute? Jesus never overturned tables at the tax collector's place? He overturned tables at the temple. That's what needed to be cleansed. That's, that's where the judgment came. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that the religious people of his day have lost their way. They have it wrong. They think that they believe and behave in a way that surely pleases God. But Jesus says, it doesn't. And so he says it in verse 20 of Matthew 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have blown their mind. Because the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were so strict. They were so conservative. They were so traditionalist that they, they put laws upon laws. They, they put rules upon rules so that they would make sure that they never break the big rules. They put little rules all over the place. And people would look at them and say, how can you ever be that good? How can you ever be that righteous? How can you ever be that straight? And Jesus says, unless you surpass the righteousness, you can never enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be different than the religious people of your day, Jesus is saying. Jesus was countercultural to the religion of his day. It's a sobering thought. Because in every era, God's people run the risk of losing their way. The arrogance and the lust for power of the religious people was unacceptable to Jesus. The power and politics of the medieval church was unacceptable to Jesus. And it continues to be unacceptable in state churches today. I dare even say that even in the evangelical church in North America, we run the risk of becoming corrupt. When the church is filled with pride, when the church is hungry for power, when the church is being hateful and angry at the world, we lose our way. Jesus says to us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone wrote an article recently called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart and this paragraph really caught my attention. He says, unlike in the Sermon of the Mount and the parable of the Good Samaritan, unlike Jesus' barrier-breaking encounters with prostitutes and Roman collaborators, with the lowly and despised, with the unclean and those on the wrong side of the holiness code, with the wounded souls whom he healed on the Sabbath, many Christians today see the world divided between us and them, the children of light and the children of darkness, they act as if they believe blessed are the politically powerful, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the culture warriors, for they will be called children of God. But that's not what Jesus taught. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The church today needs a heart check. Are we trying to seek the power the antagonism, the nationalism of the Jews and the medieval church and other such places in history. 
think about those who we really want us to represent us. Who are the poster child children of evangelicals? Are they people that are poor in spirit? Or are they people full of arrogance? Who are the pastors that we celebrate and that we lift up and that we promote? Are they, are they pastors who are filled of them, full of themselves? Or, or are they pastors who are poor in spirit? When we select deacons and people to lead our groups in church, do we look for those who, who are assertive and dominant and proud? Or, or do we look for people who are poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to be humble. It's countercultural to corrupted religion. But that's what Jesus expects of his disciples. And then to be humble means citizenship in the kingdom. Some time ago, a pastor was receiving complaints from church people about what the children were learning in Bible class. And, and so he decided he would do some research himself. And he went up to little Johnny and he said, Johnny, I have a question for you. He said, yes, pastor. He said, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And little Johnny looked at him and he said, pastor, I don't know, but I promise you I didn't do it. And the pastor became concerned. He said, Johnny's been in Bible school, in Bible class for some time, and, and he doesn't know. So he said, I'm going to talk to his teacher. So he went to, to his Bible uh, class teacher and said, Miss Betty, uh, not you, Betty, another Betty. He said, Miss Betty, um, Johnny, I talked to Johnny. I asked him who knocked down the walls of Jericho. And, and he said, Pastor, I don't know, but I want you to know I didn't do it. And so... Uh, Miss Betty replied and said, look, Pastor, I've known Johnny for a long time. He comes from a very good family. They've been in a church for quite a while. And if Johnny says he didn't do it, it's because he didn't do it. I trust him. <laughs> the pastor scratches his head and says, man, I, we really have a problem here. I mean, not only does Johnny not know, but his Bible teacher doesn't know. So I'm, we're going to escalate this. We're going to take it to the deacons. So he calls the chairman of deacons and says, I want you to know that I, I, I'm concerned about our, our children's ministry. I've talked to Johnny about who knocked down the walls of Jericho. He doesn't know. And then I talked to his teacher, and, and she said that if Johnny didn't do it, then, then he didn't do it. And, and I'm really concerned because nobody seems to know who knocked down the walls of Jericho. Chairman of deacons says, Pastor, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Listen. Just tell us where the walls are, we'll repair them, and we'll pay the whole bill and everything's going to be okay. You know, there are some minimal expectations that you have, right? When people have been in church for a while, you expect them to know certain basic things. You expect them to, to, to understand certain basic things. Well, Jesus had expectations for those who live in the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of earth. Not the geopolitical system. But the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. That's what Jesus came to establish. He didn't come to establish a geopolitical nation. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is wherever God rules. Wherever Jesus is Lord, that's the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is here and now, and it's beyond in eternity. 
Sometimes we think about the kingdom of heaven as a future reality, and it is. The fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, is yet to come. But when Jesus came, he came to introduce the kingdom of heaven here and now. We talk about being saved. I, you, you know, there, if you've been in the evangelical subculture for some time, then you hear people say, I'm saved. Are you saved? He's saved. She's not saved. Oh, the way he acts, man, he's probably not saved. And, and, and that language means to be saved, it means that we have been forgiven, that we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and he's forgiven our sins, and therefore we have the promise of eternal life. And that's a great thing. That's the greatest gift that anyone can get, salvation, to be saved. But sometimes I worry that when we use the language of I'm saved, he's saved, get saved, that we mistakenly emphasize only a decision that was made in the past to trust Jesus and a result that will come in the future, which is to go to heaven, but has no implications for what happens in between. And it's interesting to me that Jesus never invited people to get saved. Jesus never made an altar call for people to convert. Jesus always talked about the kingdom of heaven and those that enter and those that don't enter. Because for Jesus, salvation is not just a decision in the past with some kind of promise in the future, but salvation is a realm that you enter and that you live in. It's called the kingdom of God, where, where God rules, where Jesus is Lord. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven, it means that that's the way you enter the kingdom. That's why he said in Matthew 18, 3, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When you have the kind of humility and simplicity of a child, then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, you will never enter. If you hold on to, to your pride and your self-sufficiency, you'll stay out. Humility is the way to enter and it is the way to relate in the kingdom. Poverty of spirit is required in the kingdom of God. Jesus illustrated it like this in Luke chapter 18, verse nine. He said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, it is not those who pride themselves in believing and behaving in the right way that are justified with God. 
There is no room for the arrogant in the kingdom of God. Those who go around boasting about their goodness and their rightness are repulsive to God and to others too. The only thing that we should ever brag about is the cross of Jesus. The only thing that we should boast about is the grace of Jesus. It is when we were undone and broken and in our, in our lowest place, recognizing that we are all sinners, that we experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the love that is unconditional and powerful to lift us up from the lowest place and raise us up and exalt us for his glory and for his sake. That's the only thing that we can brag about. I've been so thankful for people that God has been bringing to our church over the last year or so and to meet them and to know their stories. Some time ago, someone came to the connecting point and, and I was talking to him and uh, a new family that, that's been coming to our church for some time. He's a very educated man, well-respected in our community. He's been a Christian for a long time. Uh, he, he believes the gospel. He follows Jesus. And, uh, and I said, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys have been coming to our church and I, I hope you're having a good experience as well. I want you to know that uh, we, we started coming to church for our children. Our, our, our children connected well with the ministry here with students and, and we thought if that's where they're connecting, then that's where we'll go. And, and so we started coming and we were happy about that. This is now became part of a, a man's huddle, a, a small group of men who, who get together on a regular basis and we open our hearts and and we share our struggles, and we share our brokenness, and we share the way that, that, that we need God to work in our lives. He goes, and I want you to know this. I, I realize now that the reason God brought us here was not for my children, but it was for me. And I thought, that's poverty of spirit someone who's educated and respected and knows the Bible and has been walking with Jesus for a long time, but still understands that he still needs Jesus to work in his heart. That there's still a great need of grace in his heart. What a contrast to others. What a great convicting thing is to realize that in the kingdom of God, the proud are losers and the humble are winners. That in the kingdom of God, the arrogant are left out, but the humble are welcome. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And my question to you today is, where do you find yourself today? Are you at the place where, where you've got nothing? You're undone? Where you're ready to fall on your knees and say, God, have mercy on me. I need you desperately. That's where God wants to meet you, right there. That's exactly where the kingdom of heaven begins to happen in your life. We kneel before the cross of Christ in poverty of spirit and we open up ourselves to, to a fountain of mercy and grace that will flow into our lives and will infill us. It cannot infill someone that's filled with pride. There's no room for that grace. We live in the kingdom in humility. And we ask him to do that work in us. It is by grace. We don't earn it. We don't work it up. 
In a few mi minutes, we're going to be celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. One of the things I love about communion is that it levels the ground, doesn't it? You know, we don't have a special bread for the super spiritual. You know, we don't have a separate cup for the super sinful. Everybody gets the same kit. Because all of us, all of us are sinners who have received grace at the cross. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you stand with me? Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus who teaches us, who works in us to help us become like him. Father, I confess that often I'm filled with pride, with self-confidence and self-sufficiency, and I repent of that. God, I, I want to be like Christ. I want poverty of spirit. I want to make room for your grace in my heart. So help me to be humble. Make me humble. Make me like you. And do the same with each of us here. Father, is there someone here who's never entered the kingdom of heaven? That today may be the day where in their humility they come to the cross and they say, I'm a sinner in need of grace and I receive the forgiveness of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Father, let your spirit bring that person into the kingdom right now. Right now. Whether they're in person or online. And for those who are already following you, for those who are already in the kingdom, help us to surrender daily to you. To make sure that you're king where we walk and where we work, where we relate. And that we relate in humility to you and to others. As we continue to pray, I want to invite you to, to make a commitment there where you are. To make a commitment to Christ in humility. Maybe you want to fill out a, a card or do it online. Maybe you want to come to the front and kneel down and do business with God. This is the time for you to respond. For some of you responding right now means giving, means preparing your offering or giving online. It's an act of worship. For all of us, it also means preparing our heart for communion. After this song, we'll, we'll have the Lord's Supper. So however you need to prepare your heart, do it right now.